Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Talking Crap About, the only film and video game podcast run and approved by Gingers. And a half ginger. Yes, that is my co-host, Michael, and I am the unofficial dungeon master of this, Mark Komsky. (laughs) Yeah, personally, I've I've only played like one or two games of Dungeons & Dragons. I suck at it, and I'm still trying to learn, but it's the type of thing where it's just like, oh oh yeah, I I know some terms, I know how to talk about things. I can DM with the best of them. Oh yes. Um, So, uh, how are you today? I'm keeping well. No complaints. Yeah, as far as things go here, and honestly, we've been staying fairly productive at all. Um, my brothers have both had to get haircuts. I've thankfully been able to avoid it so far um, because I've never had enough hair in my life to complain about. They've gone full skinheads. And more than likely, I'll have to follow that route. Uh, no, I can't, I can't do it. I'm, I've, I've resigned to the fact that if my hair grows long again during this lockdown, so be it. But I'm not going skinhead. Then again, like, I could never imagine you with short hair back in our first year of college because you had a full Brian May bushy hair kind oh, yeah. of aesthetic um, starting out. And then as soon as you came back from uh, Christmas, we were all just like, who the hell is that fuck you (laughs) what have you done with michael oh those were the days yeah i never one of those recently where i got a post reminding me that avengers endgame released just last year a few days ago Mm -hmm. like that was still that was still in like our last few days of college and i remember like the day after we had all gone to like the midnight premiere all separately and we came in all at like just different times and sat down just before class started and it was a weird atmosphere because we didn't know how to like just talk about it and and, like we were obviously just loved going over stuff but i just remember i was sitting down obviously just keeping names out of this but one uh came up from the elevator and i just waited for her to sit down and very calmly went so how are you doing, Three Thousand? She went yeah, mental. Yeah, she wasn't too thrilled. And then between the two of us, she was Team Iron Man, I was Team Cap, and I was pretend- respect the next day. Yeah, I was. I was just trying to pretend to be in the middle and stuff because I was like, "Can I like them both?" No, you can't. You have to pick one. That's not how those work. Ugh. It's actually the kind of thing I do miss about college and also my time in uni is just sort of the relationships you can have from stuff like that. Because I did have one of those uh, group calls with uh, my class just to wrap up our projects. Honestly, it did well for just meeting up and chatting with people again, but. It made me realize just how much I missed a lot of that communication, you know, just in person a lot of the time. Just talking to people, yeah. I'm not a bit, I'm, I mean, it's a good way to do it, but I'm not a huge fan of like everybody doing Zoom calls. Like my, a lot of my friends were like, we'll do a Zoom call and we'll play Cards Against Humanity online. I'm like, yeah, it's great. It's a good idea to get it done when you're there. But I prefer sitting across a table from somebody with a beer or whatever playing it. Yeah. It's um, still good fun though, not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, we've gotten quite into um, just Jack Changes and poker in my house. And we've also pulled out uh, the badminton nets recently. So it's the one thing I've actually proven to be good at. So I can finally rub that in the face of my brothers. Badminton, Jesus. I remember I really badly hurt my my thumb once playing badminton and never went back to it. <laughs> Old wounds will never open up. Um, mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us. I hope you're all having a lovely day. This is the film and TV part of the podcast. This is Binge Report. That, that's our jingle. So basically, just to describe this one is we're just going to be mentioning one-off films or TV shows that we've been watching just around this period and talk about if we thought they were good or, or bad or just general recommendations to see if you're into it or not. I think I'd like to start this one off with The Invisible Man. This was one of those movies that was released very early on in the year, but has recently moved to streaming because of all the stuff that's been going on. I think more than likely it's stuff like Sky Stores because it is still recent, so it would still have a price associated with it. Before I go into this, I think it's really worth mentioning the history behind this because you probably remember back around 2016, 2017, Universal was trying to start up their equivalent to the MCU, the the dark universe. universe. So instead of superheroes, it was like their classical monsters. The Mummy, which was the worst thing I saw that year. I remember sitting in that cinema just as the logo popped up for the Dark Universe. I went, this is going to be shit. Just, what? <laughs> well, no, they yeah. did, didn't they try to start a 
prior to that with Dracula Untold with uh, Luke Evans. It was actually filmed in the north. And yeah, that was one of the bigger productions that started off in Northern Ireland because of something like Game of Thrones success, because there were big productions in Northern Ireland technically before it, but Thrones was technically the one that uh, got the ball rolling. Put us on the map, do not talk. <laughs> but uh, they have been trying to start it off for a while, and for the most part, it just wasn't successful because they're trying to hit all the target demographics while not actually recognizing what the thing was about. Because of the mummy's failure, and specifically this was the one with Tom Cruise back in 2017, the, the glorious Brendan Fraser movies. Ugh, R.I.P. Apparently, like, that was meant to be parts of the universe. Like, there's little references, but I was so, like, just bored by it, I couldn't be bothered looking into them. It's so stupid. It was just... Sh- I, I can't describe it. It was a schlocky. Sh- it was... It was done by the, like, director... No, the screenwriter of the Transformers movies, so... Big one. Uh, that would be why. <laughs> yeah. So... Because of this failure, they've taken a step back and are giving these projects, you know, their smaller budgets, uh, giving them smaller talent. And I think this does so much better for these kinds of stories rather than trying to put in all the chips to say this is going to be a big success. It's going to lead to things. There was another version of it in the 2000s done by Paul Verhoeven, I think, that had, I think that was had Kevin Bacon in the role. The thing is worth noting about this movie is that It's not just like the change behind the scenes of, you know, budgets and who it's trying to sell to. It's more that this is also something that's been molded very much by like the era it's in right now, because it's very clear this thing is taking influence or like advice from the Me Too movement. Because like starting off, the film is essentially about this like abused woman who has just escaped her abusive ex, who's this very famous... um, tech engineer who's like he's sort of a mark zuckerberg type and he's just recently committed suicide he suddenly left her all his finances and these resources but all is not as it seems because she's quickly stalked by guess what an invisible man did not see that one coming because earlier adaptations of this uh, would have primarily focused on like the monster itself but this switches the perspective to the victim played by elizabeth moss the best way to sum this up and this came from a great review on sam's channel is that if this was given an elevator pitch it would be what if harvey weinstein had an invisibility suit and it very much has that kind of weird visceral approach where you do know that like this person who is in this like position of power and money will be getting away with some unsavory shit that shouldn't be allowed and it is like genuinely just bizarre to see some of the stuff occur now this film is obviously on a much smaller scale compared to what's been done in the past and i think that serves a lot better because a lot of the framing is just us like studying the environment just trying to see any sort of hints that yeah this guy's gonna jump out there is jump scares in the traditional sense it is you know, the traditional buildup of, oh, is it going to come? Is it going to come? Boom. There you go. Yeah. Feels earned. It's the type of thing where we're given hints, like, to see the threat is coming, like, just for a second, and then it happens. Like, I probably won't go into spoilers, but there's a moment, uh, I'd say, in a restaurant where there's just a conversation happening between two characters, and just for a moment, we see, like, the threat just about to happen. So by the time our brains register it's coming, it just happens. It's a type of jump scare. It doesn't feel like, oh, it's just jump scare and over with. It feels like it's legitimately earned and has lasting consequences afterwards. And it's refreshing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, often, um, a lot of this does get sold brilliantly by Elizabeth Moss. And I will say, like, she doesn't have the traditional, like, pretty look you'd associate with most Hollywood actresses. Like, that's not to say she doesn't have her nice-looking qualities, but, like, she has a good sense of looking like a crazy person a lot of the time. If you've ever seen her work in stuff like The Handmaiden's Tale, and a lot of that show is just, you know, her expression having to sell so much of the horror in that, it's very much here, because, like, she's got very sunken eyes, she's very withdrawn, very, like, skittish at first. So she's seen some shit. Yeah, so it's the type of thing where it's like we're on her side, but we don't really trust her at first. But, you know, as it goes along and, like, we see the stuff, 
that the other like characters don't see as well because to her they all think she's crazy we know it's true but they don't so we have sympathy but at the same time it's hard not to admit yeah these situations are bizarre and weird you can't really like pretend oh your boyfriend who's dead is suddenly doing all this stuff in the afterlife Uh, I will mention this as well for just how the horror works is that there is a bit two thirds of the way in where they do explain how it all works. And I usually don't complain about spoilers. I don't think that's necessary to the experience, but I've decided I'm not going to mention it here because it's better to go in with like as little background knowledge as possible. Even when it is, you know, just given to the audience, this is how it all works. It doesn't feel, you know, it doesn't rob any of the tension afterwards. It's still, like, tense and scary knowing the thing is there. Even, like, seeing the thing's final form is generally just very unsettling. That being said, I do think there is problems in how this works later on in this execution because, obviously, um, it being invisible is, like, they needed to be, like, creative in how, like, what's to and what not to show. So there's like scenes where he's just messing with uh, Elizabeth Moss, you know, he doesn't attack. It's just like things moving in the background or sometimes it's like a steady shot just holding in like a kitchen and for like 30 seconds nothing happens and then like a grill goes on fire. It's that type of thing where you're just sort of like scanning the environment just thinking, when's he going to jump? And then it happens. Yeah, I feel like that's overused a lot in horror though where it just... It's just a still frame and then something happens like that and it just moves on and never acknowledges it. There is definitely a problem as well with, let's say, the power sets, because obviously our main character being invisible, or sorry, our villain being, you know, invisible, you have to consider how do they make this more visually interesting. So having like Elizabeth Moss suddenly like floating in midair, being choked or being thrown across a room, it kind of gives the illusion that our villain has super strength when he really shouldn't and it was probably done because they thought this would probably look the most visually interesting or something to sell especially when you look at how they did certain of the one takes where it's like an automated camera and so it like zips into position in time with all the movements in particular there's a really amazing one take in uh, mental asylum where he essentially just takes on like 10 different guards at once I usually find them very gimmicky, but it's one of those times I feel like a one-take was well-deserved and actually worked. The Daredevil shot? All in all, I genuinely really enjoyed this film. I think it's one of those things where, like, it's not amazing, but, you know, sometimes having just a really good flick can help pass the time or just be really enjoyable. I feel like there is going to be a discussion more about this because of the behind the scenes of it being molded into this product that, you know, it speaks to the Me Too movement about men in position, like abusing women that don't have as much luxury, as well as like framing that from the victim's perspective. Mm-hmm. Generally, I had a little look into it beforehand, and I think Johnny Depp was originally in line to play the Invisible Man. And regardless of what like that situation turned out as, I think like that was the best decision not to go ahead and cast him. So if you get the chance, this is currently up for rental on stuff like Sky Stores and stuff. So yeah. if you get the chance, I'd definitely recommend it. Yeah, I actually just wrote it down there. <laughs> so um, I think I'll jump into just another one and then I'll let you take uh, another, is that I watched Primal. This is the new series by Gendy Tarkovsky, uh, creator of stuff like Samurai Jack. And the original Clone series? <laughs> yes, actually, I was going to mention that because the first time I ever encountered one of his works was a DVD rental store that was near my house. Like, those were simpler times. And it actually wasn't an extra vision. That was on, like, you know, the fancy end of town. We were at the more quaint end. The things I remember about it is that they had a original trilogy Star Wars arcade machine. So it was like a stick. Each game was focused on, like, a specific section. Like, you did a trench run for episode four, fought the AT-80s for episode five. And then the one I always played was you fight Darth Vader uh, on the Death Star, pretending that you had a lightsaber, and I just always remember that being a part of that place. Uh, I saw Mr. Sunday movies doing a video on that game and never saw it before, ever. uh, Arcade machines are like, they are like past our era, but I'm always like really fascinated to see and play one when I can. I always remember, I think they once had an Alien Free shooter set up there, so it was like an on-rails one where you shot, and like, this is 1992, so obviously everything was like 16-bit like graphics and stuff, but it was like, you know, that as a kid, that was cool to me. But 
at that shop, I'd obviously just gotten to things like Spider-Man 2 and Osmosis Jones, but one of the things that really stood out to me was the Clone Wars micro-series that was done by Tartakovsky. And even as a kid, it was one of those things where I was so interested in saying, like, this is, like, different. I was, like, really fascinated by it. Like, he has this real eye for, like, very specific, like, character details. And also, um, sound design is also very critical in his work because there's so often points where there's like no dialogue and it's just letting the scene play out like the one image i always remember from that was anakin versus asajj ventress and there's like this full 30 or so seconds where the music stops and it's just rainfall on them and it's just their lightsabers you know the light reflecting off them and all the rain sort of just bouncing off the sabers and i just thought oh this is so cool i want to see more of like this specific kind of stuff moving on from that there i never really got into samurai jack as much but i was really interested to see how like that show got a final season like years later and evolved with its audience because looking back on it a lot of cartoon network shows of the early 2000s ended up getting like reboots to like just appeal to the new generation of kids it happened to stuff like powerpuff girls teen titans there was another one i'm trying to think ben 10 um yeah it was amazing that like jack was one that like it didn't get a reboot it actually got a definitive finish and it got an official r rating you know to work with like the older viewers who had grown up with the show and were coming back to it the reason i mention all this is that i don't usually pick out like singular creators in a work because i feel like you've got so many people on a project that there are people in higher positions that will have an effect on it but like everyone has their parts to play in it but i was specifically point to gendy as like one of those people in animation i'm like yes this is a guy with like distinctive work i will point to his like directed works and stuff like that Primal, which is his latest, this is a five-episode miniseries, I think it's all on all four, I believe, is, like, taking all of his, like, specific traits as a storyteller to their logical extreme, because there is no dialogue in this show. It's just set in this period of cavemen and dinosaurs, and this show is not for kids. Just looking at, like, a lot of animation, they're just like, oh, let's just put this on for the kids. Do not... To give you an idea, in the first episode, our main character's family gets killed by dinosaurs and one of the families he sets out to kill finds out has kids of its own and in the fight of that first episode, those same dinosaur kids get eaten by like bigger ones and this show is not afraid to pull punches. It's rough, it's violent, blood is spewed and bones get broken it is not nice violence it's sort of like very uh, very nasty to look at and stuff and a lot of the sound design and like very visceral look to a lot of it is sold really well because there's a lot rougher quality to the characters in this than there would have been in something like jack where they were all very stylized you could silhouette them and you'd know instantly what they look like these ones are more rough around the edges they run slightly differently and stuff like that it's it's gendy at like his best but if you were never into his work to begin with you know his very particular style i don't think this would really work for you as a viewer because it expects you to get a lot of stuff without saying anything because it's all just communicated through visuals and sounds and obviously like i said not a word is spoken and i think that does well for it but at the same time i feel like a lot of people could view that as a gimmick you know not having any dialogue like i remember watching a quiet place and thinking the entire time you know what i think these characters probably do need to speak at some point and like two thirds of the way in they do but at that stage like i don't think the visual storytelling was strong enough in that to like really stick the landing and there was also the stuff with how inconsistent some of the things the in that world were established i'd suggest going into primal with like a knowledge of what you're getting into because it's one of those series you do need to pay attention to while watching compared to some of the other stuff we've mentioned in the past where you could just sort of have it on in the background this requires like an active view yes it is rewarding and as of right now there is more episodes planned there is only five right now i think that's a much easier offer to get through instead of like trying to do all five seasons of jack which i will mention they are on the same service all four i've been slowly re-watching them and it's been really interesting to see how much gendy's 
work has changed and evolved with time, especially because of how shows like he would have started on initially, like Jack, and I think he also did Dexter's Laboratory, would have been like mostly yeah. aimed at kids, and slowly as time went on, he's been able to like grow and evolve his art. And definitely props go out to like all the members of like the teams and stuff like that. Big um, thumbs up for me, but like do know what you're getting into before starting. Mm-hmm. I'll give that a watch, definitely. Right, not one back. Uh, just the long, expanding list of stuff I will eventually watch. Well, I mean, in lockdown, I need something to watch, and I'm, I'm running out of things. There's only so many times you can watch Doctor Who. <laughs> Michael, you've yeah. been watching the new Clone Wars season on Disney+. Plus. I have, yes. Uh, I mean, I would call it inconsistent at the minute. Because the first few episodes was the Bad Batch, was phenomenal. I loved every second of it with the clones. But episodes... <laughs> four to seven I think it was with Ahsoka and the T-Guard I don't know it was just it seemed like filler when they don't have time for filler they have 12 episodes and they've spent three on characters I don't care about <laughs> except for yeah. Ahsoka obviously yeah like I remember when it started up like the stuff with Ahsoka was the stuff I was the most interested to see and how this would tie into the last few episodes and especially the importance of this last season having only half the episodes of what a normal season of Clone Wars would have had was like a big concern going in. Generally, I was really scared of trying to starting this series again because like, you know, not this obviously is like the CG show uh, that got cancelled. Yeah. Um, it coming back after so many years, I was scared going back into this because I loved this show so much in my early teens. And there's always this fear of coming back to something years later and fearing that like it doesn't like hold up or it doesn't like meet those sort of expectations you would have had when you were younger. For the most part, I've been like surprisingly really impressed. I got a Disney Plus subscription specifically for this. Yeah, not the Mondo? Yeah, yeah, Mondo's another one. And actually, I'll just mention this to our US listeners because um, a lot of our audience is from there. Um, we didn't actually get Disney Plus released here in the UK and Ireland until March 24th, and stuff is still released on a week-to-week basis. So, The Mandalorian, I think, is still on episode six or seven. Six. Of this. It's six. The last I saw it was at six. I haven't checked it today, though. It might be seven. Yeah. So, honestly, when that does wrap up, I think we can do a full discussion on that. The best praise I think I could give season seven so far is that. It feels like it never left. Like, the moment episode one starts up and it does all the traditional title fonts and narration, it's the type of thing where you're just like, ugh, I I miss this so much. And it's the type of thing where it's like you've seen how much, like, the animation has improved from... Honestly, the first season was, like, really rough around the edges. Like, everyone had a wax-like look to them. Seeing how much has improved, like, from the compositions to the framing to the voice acting, especially, I can't remember his name, but it's just one guy does all the voices for the clones, and the fact uh, he's able to give them credit to him for giving them, like, so much personality. And, like, that first episode with the Bad Batch gives each individual one, like, so much personality, and their designs also add to that as well. Like, I particularly liked uh, the John Rambo esque leader. I, I thought he just looked really cool. Yeah, I thought he was more of a solid snake type thing. <laughs> Obviously, it's me. Uh, where's Where's David Hayter when you need him? Like what? The arc in the middle, which was with Ahsoka and like the two thieves, I thought it was okay. Like it was the type of thing where it felt like, yeah, this feels like just one of those mid tier arcs you would have gotten in seasons three or four. Yeah, it was. And like when it does reach its conclusion, I was like, you know what? This is the point where like it is coming to an end, and I'm glad it's there. But you really could have made this one or at least two episodes just to say, yes, here's the point. Ahsoka's left the Jedi Order. She's going to get called help out with stuff like this. Yeah. They just started to get her to Mandalore and they could have done something better. Yeah. And wow. We are just in the middle of the final arc right now, the Mandalorian Siege. This was the big tease at the end of season five before the show's cancellation. This is the arc that's clearly gotten the most love and attention put into it so far because, like, from the moment it starts up, it uses the old Lucas Arts, um, like opening font. Yeah, the font. And all of like the character designs have been radically updated to like fit specifically in with that. Like Anakin straight up does look yeah, much more like Hayden Christensen. You see the grey on Obi-Wan's hair. So much of two episodes of it so far, like, have been given such a cinematic scale that is just 
unbelievable that the show's improved so much over the last while. In particular, the arc is currently halfway through. I feel like we're, we'll do a full finale discussion on the next episode. Mm-hmm. So much of the final arc, I think, is the embodiment of how much this show got improved with time. Because having so long, you know, between seasons, like the last ones they did were the Lost Missions, which is like technically season six, and the Rebel Show, which I wasn't really that into. I think, like, at its best, it was just sort of popcorn entertainment. In fact, a lot of my favorite moments from it when it was pretending to actually be a sequel to Clone Wars. Like, there was the great bit with Maul and Obi-Wan in the desert scene, and I generally... Yeah, generally, I, I thought that bit was really well done. And so I think having this time to, you know, improve at their craft and work on things has turned the Clone Wars team into, like, something that's, like, really admirable for them starting out, honestly, from really shaky foundations. I feel like what's worth mentioning is the lead person on it, Dave Filoni, because he's the type of Star Wars fan, you know, who respects the material, but he wants to make something good of it like compare this to like someone like jj abrams where he's just sitting with kathleen kennedy just going hey wouldn't it be cool like if we if we gave like chewie a medal because you know he didn't get one in a new home or something like wouldn't it be cool like how about we bring like palpatine back to fix like that uh whole mess there it's just like are you sure we shouldn't take time to plan this out now we'll have it out for yeah, christmas the kids will love it and let's see what's this oh they fly now is that the joke oh okay oh, Let- they fly now <laughs> comparing this to feloni who um having worked on the clone wars rebels he also i believe directed yes he directed the first episode of that show i'm always really fascinated when they get an animator to do like live action filming i think there's a really interesting ability for visual storytellers to really add to that particular field like there was one for brad bird who did stuff like incredibles and ratatouille he did mission impossible 4 yeah the Burj khalifa scene like that defines modern mission impossible films for me mm-hmm. I, didn't, I, I didn't know that was brad bird i yeah. didn't know that he was on that you know did incredibles and the like i think like one of the keys to mission impossible success was its ability to change and redefine itself like with the exception of rogue nation and fallout which had the same director every other film was done by like a new person so jj did number three which like i said for that previous statement i felt oh he's a bit off in this area like i generally really loved mission impossible three uh late philip seymour hoffman brilliant performance in that and because like i remember watching that film especially after like watching two thinking oh this is just silly john woo shit they can't possibly change this and then in the opening scene you're just like oh okay we're 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 back clone wars as of right now i feel is doing really good like it's amazing to see a series that was long since dormant come back and get the love and attention i feel like it really deserved as of now like there is still two episodes to go right now the final arc has been exceptional i look forward to seeing how this concludes so, go on. <laughs> i think it's just really nice to be like properly excited about star wars media again because i was mostly into like the disney phase but i think about like three or four years into it by the time solo came out i was just burnt out from it yeah, it was too much too quickly. I think trying to turn it into like a Marvel release schedule of one per year and then there's spin-offs and shows and stuff like that, I think works for certain brands. But when you look back at Star Wars, where there used to be like a three year wait between each individual sequel and like a changing of hands, I feel did so much for just giving the films their distinct identity. Like I recently rewatched Rise of Skywalker just because I was like, you know what, I need to like just make sure I've got the collection finished. I remember watching it thinking like, this doesn't feel like a film to me. This feels like a collection of toys like thrown together for 90 or so minutes. I could see it as a film just to kill time with. Arguably, I'd say Attack of the Clones and Phantom Menace are worse films, but I still remember them, you know, like, you know, for that wrong reason stuff. But like, (laughs) I honestly i'm struggling to remember rise and like i just saw it earlier today i can only remember the one part that i was like really excited for that i didn't know was going to happen until i saw it in the cinema when han solo popped back up there are individual bits in that film i think were well done i love how it recreates the bit with han solo i thought the reaction of chewbacca to leia's death was genuinely really sad and 
if I wasn't told Carrie Fisher had passed away, I don't think I would have recognized like how little she was used. Yeah. But there's points where I felt like this doesn't feel like the conclusion of something. This feels like it was just put out just to like meet a target deadline. And that's not what I want to treat Star Wars as. It it should be important. It should be memorable. Whether it's good or bad, I feel like it should say something. And like the worst Star Wars movies for me, like Rise, is it's in the middle. It just doesn't leave me with anything afterwards. That's why I'm excited to see stuff like The Mandalorian as well as The Return of Clone Wars as something to say. There are fans, like they love Star Wars, but we're here to make new material. We're not afraid to switch things up. We're going to like make our statements this is going to be like our piece of media to define star wars for our generation yeah well i feel like a lot of people are saying we want to make something different in star wars and then everybody gets angry because they made something different in star wars i think like the people who hate star wars the most are star wars fans oh definitely the person that loves star wars the most is sam whitwer not an actor (laughs) also actually before we do move on the lightsaber fight and with at the that. end of Twilight of the Apprentice was all was was mocap with Ray Park and I think it's really good they got him back he he did Maul in Phantom Menace didn't he yeah he did like the physical appearance it was Peter Serfinowitz that did the voice it then became Sam Witwer in the show and it's been Sam Witwer ever since seriously like props to Sam because like that last line he does in Phantom Apprentice was like oh, so yeah, well was... done like he's been doing this since I think maybe around 2011 and that is the voice of Maul for me. Like, that's what I think of when I see that character. Having Ray Park, like, doing the physical acting is that, like, he's the type of person that can add so much to a character's physicality. Yeah, it was, like, the first shot whenever he ignites his save when he puts his hand back. Because I was like, eh, that's exactly like he did it in the movie. And then I saw that they did mocap it. I think that did a lot, you know, to add to just the spectacle of it. Because there's this great ebb and flow to just that fight. Because it cuts between that and the clone troopers fighting Death Watch outside. I feel like this is the type of just flow that you don't really see much in a lot of action media. Because they have the urge to, like, constantly interrupt it. Here, it just feels like smooth it flows it doesn't like feel the need to interrupt itself it just like works for me and it's hard to think of like specific examples but when you see it like you just feel good watching it and you're just like yep that's good just no more no less got me instantly whenever they were both like stirring each other down and then the windows smashed behind them uh i I love that composition so much I, I think we'll leave Clone Wars for now. We'll probably do a full uh, discussion on the series finale when it airs, I think, probably next episode. So uh, It's um, next Friday, and then three days after that is the finale. Uh, well, um, I'll not be sleeping easy then. Me neither. <laughs> Tell you what, I, I, I'm just going to quickly just pop my charger into this laptop because I feel like it might die on me mid-conversation. So if I get spoilers on like Final Fantasy VII, you're just like, what? Click. He's gone. <laughs> Hold on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What? I'm recording something. The the, the podcast thing. What? <laughs> he needs a lift. Leave that in. Leave that in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just hold on. I watched the new season of Better Call Saul. This is uh, the fifth one that's just come out recently. And from what I can tell, like, this still runs on AMC in America. So, like, we still only get episodes week to week compared to Netflix's other offerings where it would be all at once. I think the best way to describe Saul right now is that, like, it started out pretty mediocre. Like, it just felt like it was there as a cash grab to get off Breaking Bad success at the time. Because, like... I remember that show blew up in like 2012 and 2013 when it's last season and like went down as like a classic. And personally, like I'm in that cr- camp. Like I liked the first four seasons and then the last season was like amazing start to finish. Like Ozymandias, still one of my favorite episodes of TV ever. Saul, I think, has benefited from the fact that it has gone on for a long time, that um, it is going to be surpassing uh, its predecessor's runtime because it is getting another season. It's been able to carve its own distinct identity because of it. Like, so often with prequels, you get this sense that they need to just fill in the gaps. They need to tell you where these characters are going to be or what they're going to do at a certain point. And I feel like a lot of stuff like that usually fails because they're trying to like keep it just accurate enough. 
this show I think benefited because it allowed us to see the development happen but also just do whatever they wanted with it as well because we know where Mike or Saul is going to end up by the end of this and witnessing like the decisions that get him to that point is the type of stuff like it feels in character it feels earned and watching like the building blocks get into place for Breaking Bad is satisfying but it also helps that you know the show's got its own distinct look it's a narrative and this some of its characters like so much of the show's like sense of aesthetic comes from how different it is to bring about at some points like every season has opened up with a black and white supposedly flashback scene and then recently it's been revealed no these are flash forwards after like bad's conclusion much like uh el camino which came out last year and having all of this suddenly glued together with time i think has done this prequel a lot of good because it's been given the time to improve over its run change your time especially like the camera work is the type of thing with gilligan's work where like it's very naturalistic not just in its lighting but also just how weird some of the angles are like they feel just so genuine but also like very avant-garde and weird-esque if you know what i mean an auteur is we're you know the official film podcast we're not those we're not those film bro kinds we know what auteur means (laughs) honestly i don't think i have a huge amount to say in it right now aside from the fact like this recent season i think is the show hitting its peak in terms of uh, its improvement so far i mean compared to when it started out i feel like the increase in narrative storytelling and how events have been conveyed have drastically improved with time no show does montages like better call saul the lack of action i think adds that because so much of it is just lawyers stuff and them just like signing things and then when like action does occur it's like genuinely like really like intense or well directed sometimes i feel like his influence from westerns can be a little bit like too on the nose too heavy-handed at the same time i feel like it's gotten to the point where it's like they know when to tone it down like for instance they have one episode very much like uh zuko alone or stuff like that where saul and mike just are trapped in a desert after their car breaks down during a shootout and it's literally just them getting from point a to b there's not really much that happens outside of it and it's so easy to mess up these kinds of episodes just making them boring through like the visual direction and like the cast playing off each other it's done wonders for making like simple narrative beats feel like genuine and really well done like there's one from Brady Bad I always remembered it was the opening to season four uh the box cutter and it's tells you so much about Gus's character because like it would have been so easy for him to make just a big villainous speech but it's just him putting on like all his like protective equipment as Walt's trying to like beg for their lives he just kills his henchmen and the only words he says afterwards is get back to work that can say so much about a character just by letting the material speak for itself and not like feeling the need to explain things to us like twirling your mustache and having a monologue I don't know, I feel like there's been this discussion the last while about which one of these shows is superior to each other, and I don't really think that's an argument worth having. Like, I would have been one of those people early on in the show, but I feel like enough time has passed that both have sort of molded into their, like, own identities. They can stand on their own. It just so happens that Saul has the benefit of being a prequel. It is specifically because of these last few seasons where the tie-ins to Breaking Bad are a little more frequent but they feel justified and well deserved and seeing how all the puzzle pieces click into place does the sort of thing with a prequel that usually is pretty frustrating but i feel has done a lot of good for this particular incarnation for this series i haven't got around to watching it yet it's in it's on the list that i have written down but i need to i need to i know what i know how breaking bad ends i just haven't watched it watched Mm -hmm. all of it yet so I was going to watch all that thing, go back to Better Call Saul. And then just everything got on top of me and I never got around to it. Yeah, it's just, it's the same thing where like the breadth and variety of shows out there, I feel means like a lot of things do get lost in the crossfire, especially as like we're in that age of like big seasonal shows and quick fix solutions. Like I feel Netflix's model of releasing entire seasons at once Mm-hmm. I feel is the detriment of that. Like I remember when Stranger Things had its third season and like it was talked about for just maybe a week 
and it was all right, but like I forgot about it almost immediately after. And I feel like Disney Plus is trying to slowly like get back to more traditional broadcasting by having things done week to week. Yeah, by staggering. It's like, look, putting aside like the weird talks about finances because like you're paying for a monthly subscription and all your episodes don't come out on time is a like weird proposition but i feel like there is something to be said about keeping the audience's attention because i feel like after throne's conclusion last year i feel like traditionally broadcast shows were probably going on the way out yeah um, i'm 5.99 for <laughs> speaking of different and new things this is the video game section checkpoint quest Editor, fix this, please. I'll think of something. <laughs> so, if you couldn't guess, this is the video game section of a film and video game podcast. Could you see that coming? I certainly couldn't. Oh, dear. Um, I'm blind. I'd like you to take this one. Um, we had a brief chat about uh, the remake of FF7 just uh, last time, and I feel like enough time has passed where it's okay to do a full spoiler discussion on it, so... Whatever you feel like, you know, stuff like it's narrative or gameplay changes, stuff like that, um, I just let loose. Go ahead. It's the biggest conversation point, and I know it's going to sound weird for what was a, essentially a remake of a 20-year-old game, is its narrative. I have made timelines. I have written down notes. There's, like, this whole thing. FS7 Remake isn't a remake. Okay. If you want to stew in that for a minute. The majority of it throughout the game, it follows the same beats and there's these things that follow the party called Whispers that actually make sure that it follows the same beats. Like narratively, they're there to make sure. At the end, in the original game, when you got to the Shinra building, they find President Shinra dead already. But in the remake, he's still alive when they get there. Oh, so which is like... Does Genova like get out and like kill a lot of the soldiers, or is that scene in, removed? In the, that scene is removed, which I hate it because in the original, oh, not I love really that. like hers were standing on end, walking through, and like the walls were spattered with blood, and it was amazing. That's not in it anymore. Mm -hmm. But whenever you get up to the top, Shinrazari gives this big villain monologue, holding a gun to the party, which I didn't like either because it's I don't know, James it anyway. But then Sephiroth shows up. <gasps> and kills him. Oh. So already, you should know that this is completely different. Do you fight Sephiroth instead? We'll get, we'll get to that. <laughs> you know in the original where Sephiroth uses pieces of Genova to make monsters to slow the party down? He does that at the top of the Shinra building to slow the party down. You beat the monster, blah blah blah. You fight Rufus, as it always is. You do the highway chase out of Midgar. Ah. And when you get to the end, Sephiroth is there which is again different and he's basically like you've been you know trailed by these whispers who are making sure you do this by the book what if we can change that so but, like this is actively like this is changing how we were expecting things to go so Sephiroth opens up a portal so that the party can go and fight these whispers that you then beat and after you beat it and this is the part that I was like, it was four o'clock in the morning. I had headphones on. This part, I was practically pumping my fist and screaming. You beat the whispers. And then, right after the Midgard chapter, you fight Sephiroth. Okay. And, you, you, know, you, you know, it's, you know, have you ever watched Advent Children? The nerd in me was, like, the sound design in that movie, whenever, like, Cloud and Sephiroth's swords hit. It's like a ringing, like, vroom. It's a, it's, 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 they use that in the game, so I was there tonight. But once you, you beat that boss fight, Sephiroth takes Cloud off to what he calls the Edge of Creation. And just, he, he toys with him, he kicks his ass, it's a cutscene. But then he says, seven seconds to the end, I wonder what you'll do with it, or something along those lines. Then... It shows you the cutscene of the end of Crisis Core, okay. where Zack dies at, in Crisis Core, 
But in this, as he's like, he's taking out everybody, he's standing there with the Buster Sword in the ground. At the moment where you would expect the three troops to come up and shoot him in the chest and kill him. And instead of that, he looks up, the sun starts shining, and then goes, wait, is that all of them? Oof. Oh, wow. Um... So, in the remake... Now, there's this whole thing, I've written a whole thing out. The ending of the game basically tells you that from this point on, in the next chapters, nothing... It's You know what, it's like... I forget what trailer it was, it was probably Star Wars, where they say, nothing is going to go the way that you think. <laughs> So not like from that, from this point on, it's everything is different. Yeah, like there's this thing with especially video game remakes where I'm always curious to see how they handle very specific sort of sequences. Like there's this great bit in Resi Two where like you go into a hallway and like you come across like the first like really beaten up zombie and like you tilt up its head. Oh, and, and the guy. Yeah. yeah, like it's clearly been like this was the place like in the original you would have encountered the liquor and there would have been the big cutscene and you're pre- you're preparing for it and he's not there and you're like okay and so you go along like one or two other hallways you're busy with other things you go yeah. into like the one where the star's office is whoosh, he attacks and you're like oh god there he is yeah it's, it's, it's so good but yeah that's the, the narrative is completely different and the remake yeah and like no. this switching around of events like does this like change any sort of like of the character's dynamics in this? Like, is Cloud still a mopey teenager in this? It does change it a wee bit because in the original game, Cloud. I mean, you played him as you liked him. You can pick his dialogue, but more often than not, he was just a hard ass until he finds out like his whole backstory and things. But he does start to lighten up a lot earlier in this game, and there's actually hints about his backstory a lot earlier than there was in the original as well. I do get a sense that, like, a lot of people will be coming to, like, FF7 for the first time because of this remake, so they're going to be seeing, like, these characters through these, like, particular incarnations of them. I very much get the sense Nomura writes stuff like a pantomime, just how the characters sort of bounce off and chat to each other in, like, big, exaggerated ways. And so I'm sort of curious, how does that things from, like, 97 suddenly apply to a game in 2020? It is translated well. They do... I, I thought they were going to skip out on like the cross-dressing scene because uh, people would be up in arms, but they did, and they did it very well, and it was probably the most fun I had when I was playing the game. <laughs> like people are going like, "Oh, Tifa or Aerith, th- those are best girls." Cloud, hmm. Cloud, but, Cloud. Nah, Tifa's, Tifa's best girl. But there's like it's it's there's like it's so weird. Like you're shown Zack surviving at the end, but it's in an alternate timeline than the one that you just played. Yeah, I made a diagram. <laughs> mm. Yeah, just yeah, so a lot of notes. Understand it. I feel like the main things I remember you for in college were like you always had like a Final Fantasy VII shirt, a Kojima yes. shirt, and that Ellie shirt. And like FF7 was the one that always came out the most frequently. He is probably going to do like some big write up and just like maybe how like his, this little bit of his clothing's a bit off. No, he's got like the full diagram. No, it's because it's like there's this whole thing. <laughs> Oh god! It's not even like it's. You could do this with any show. This isn't even exactly like Final Fantasy related. But in this game, it, it, this is this is what I think has happened, which is you know, it's probably way off. But in the original timeline, when it gets to the end of Advent Children and Sephiroth goes, because nobody really dies in Final Fantasy VII, they go back to the life stream, and if their will is strong enough, they can like control it a wee bit. Like Earth could do it in the movie and in the game. Sephiroth could do it because he was able to make remnants of himself. I think, what if the live stream allows you to go back in time to a different point? I think Sephiroth did that after Advent Children, which made this new timeline, which he then goes back and talks to Cloud and allows him to go back in time to save Zack, which made another timeline. So there's three separate timelines. That's the condensed version. So this very much gives it the luxury to do whatever it pleases with like iconic scenes from the original like it could put them in whatever order it pleases or let's say yeah. just do its own take on things it can be completely different earth could probably not even die in the next one i am very much tempted to get this but i'm also just kind of curious about the fact that like this is being released in parts like this is specifically all around midgar and the changes you've mentioned we are very much at the end of this generation like 
the next part more than likely is going to be like PlayStation 5 and like does this end in like a sort of tease saying to be continued on like going past the Midgar Zalm and stuff like that? It does and it's the phrasing of it that makes you think. It says there's a big text that comes up after or before the credits, after the credits, whatever, that says the unknown journey will continue. Having the luxury to play around with stuff like that, I think, gives remakes, specifically of video games, a lot more luxury than something like films, where more often than not, they're striving just to completely stay with the iconography or stuff that people remember from the original and are often afraid to try and implement on them. Yeah, well, no, they do. They do uh, after their you know offer their callbacks from the original, but they do change it a good bit. Yeah, like definitely for. A lot of the trailers for FF7, like, a lot of that marketing was designed specifically just to hit the nostalgia button. Like, I think one trailer in particular that stood out to me was them using all the music and the very specific line at the end of Tifa going, I'm really glad to have you back, Cloud. And you're just like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Tugging on heartstrings. The music's amazing. The whole whole thing. I I can complain very briefly about it, but... Generally, like... The music of Final Fantasy is something that's always important because it's distinct to that particular era of systems of whenever it was made. Because you can have your themes from like the SNES games transmitted to a PlayStation 1 or a PS2, but like they're very much tracks that were of their times. They were made specifically for them. So like when you've got like a full orchestral version of like the main theme or stuff like that. I know that this is very much like music that would have been constructed for a PS1, but everything's now an orchestra. Like, in moments like that, I'm like, yes, I, I enjoy this in the moment. But I think there are also points where I was just like, you know what, I think this really benefits from having one, like uh, One Winged Angel, which is like Sephiroth's theme. Yeah, like, Fight On as well, which is the main battle theme. Chandler is very well. Definitely really, really good. All in all, like, I've been very pleasantly surprised with all the positive talk about the FF7 remake, because, like, Final Fantasy's been in a kind of weird state in the last few years because of, like, the changing of hands, and also that, like, more often than not, like, the single-player-focused games, I think, have sort of been pushed back to more the online ones, like 14 and stuff like that. And, like, we've made it no secret that we've been frustrated with Nomura's position as a director, where, like, I think he's a genuinely talented character designer, but he's a storyteller and leader, like, second. And, you know what, I'm going to have to take the slice of humble pie and say, you know what, like, I have my problems with him, but he seems to be getting things back on track. I'm very much glad to see, you know what, we gave him another chance, and I feel like he's doing really good, being given the time to properly, like, work on a product and finish it. Yeah, well, this this specifically has sort of torn the fan base down the middle, though. Because like changing the narrative of it. Seven, even from someone who wasn't even that into Final Fantasy, seven is the one everyone remembers as like the big iconic entry in the series. Like it was the big one to define JRPGs and like launched that like subgenre to like be one of the biggest ones in the industry right now. Brought it to the West. Actually, yeah, more specifically, I think to just get it to a Western audience because like the nineties was the time of like the anime boom. So stuff like that and Pokemon was like. It was just that perfect storm for it just to hit like a new untouched market and suddenly everyone overnight was instant fans of this particular kind of just experience and stuff to get into. It's still present. It still has an impact in 2020 and I look forward to see what comes next. Obviously, this is all very up in the air right now because like first tease of this, if you want to call it that, was technically 2006. I remember the PS3 got a tech demo. Tech demo, yeah. Yeah, which was... Yeah, that was like the opening section. And so like that was technically a tease for it. And then there was the announcement in 2015 delays and then it finally released. I will always go by the idea that a product should be given the time in the oven to like properly be made to the best of its abilities. A crunch aside, like that's a whole upper topic for another time. This could be a start for like a new era of Final Fantasy. Like, sure, revisiting the older ones, I think, is a way to get older fans in, but also as a chance for new ones to jump on board. So whatever does come next with this, or maybe in the future there's FF16. I think this will come first. (laughs) Yeah, more than likely. Like episode two or whatever they're going to call it, because they can't call it remake anymore. Yeah, it's sort of like how there's probably going to be a Resi 4 remake before there will be a Resi 8 remake, or Resi 8 entry, I think. Definitely. Well, there's already word of a Resident Evil yet. 
that it's yeah. going to be vastly different than the other titles, which wasn't great if we remember, you know, how Reception to Six was. Honestly, I think um, I want to do like a proper full discussion on Resident Evil another time. I feel like once I um, do get free and do a full playthrough of that, I feel like it's worth having just one big discussion on that series' weird evolution through stuff. Honestly, I think uh, that's good to leave Final Fantasy VII on a good note like that. And I feel like I can mention one more before we wrap this episode up. I've been playing River City Girls. This is... Let's make that the jingle for the video game section now. Ew. (laughs) Um, This is very much like a modern take on scrolling beat-em-ups of the 80s and 90s. You'd see stuff like Golden Axe and Final Fight. And it also does kind of cherry-pick elements for more modern sort of titles in this genre, like uh, the Scott Pilgrim game. I, I generally miss that one so much because... I've looked into it, like, apparently it was originally meant to be a fallout between the music producers, but then it was turns out it was Ubisoft's decision to remove it from online distribution. So, like, technically that game is no longer readily available, and I think that's a shame because I generally loved that so I much. I have it downloaded on my PS3. <laughs> yeah, that you, you can pawn that off. That'll be, like, the PT for that system, you know, just... Yeah. Give it full price to say has Scott Pilgrim on it. Yeah. This isn't usually the type of genre of games I would go into because they are very much like they're products of their time. They're things that like usually aren't capable of being put into modern contexts and still hold up. But this was done by Arc System Works. They're very good at a lot of their traditional fighting games. Uh, they did a great one, Dragon Ball Fighter Z, which. That came out at the time when, like, I was slowly getting back into that series after, like, spending years apart from it. Because, like, having a Dragon Ball Z game every year just got boring. And then this was the first one since maybe Tenkaichi 3 on the PS2 where I genuinely, like, was back and in love with this series again after so long. Fighting games that actually feel like they have weight and physicality behind their combat. And... Obviously, applying this from traditional fighters to side-scroller has the risk of not really, like, translating as well, but for the most part, it's turned out really well. It's fun to play, it's easy to navigate, there's a lot of variety, not just in the enemies, but also the way you fight them, because compared to the past where it was just get from point A to B, you're given a full, like, world to navigate with shops to upgrade, and you actively learn combat moves as you go along. And so much of this game's like appeal lies in its aesthetic because it's a mixture of modern fidelity pixel art where like everything is like rendered in what you would have expected from something like the SNES, but like just looks so up to date and clean, along with just a really like cute, expressive anime art style. Like when you fight one of the bosses at the end of each stage, they're given like a really pretty looking animated cutscene and they do it in like sort of comic panels where they explain their tragic backstories <laughs> and then you kick their shit absolutely even if you weren't into this genre to begin with or a hardened like veteran of it i feel like there's something to appreciate not just in aesthetics but that it's really fun to play it is hard at points like i'm currently on one of the bosses which is like the fashion designer like i've been stuck in it for all of this week and it's something where it's just like come on it's just like get to that point please is, is it a recent release this came out just at the end of last year. I got it on Christmas. It turned out really well. It's available. I got it on Switch, but I think it should be on PlayStation and stuff like that. Personally, I feel like a, the Switch is much better suited to something like that, you know, on the go for co-op and stuff. Sorry, one second. Take your time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm back. I think that's all for the video game section. Generally, like, I want to expand this more in the future. I feel like there's more to talk about. It's just that... Right now, we're at the phase where it's like we're working more through the backlog of stuff rather than recent releases. Yeah, because there's nothing out. Yeah, honestly, I think it's it does better because it means I come across stuff I've like regularly uh, missed out on. And I think the way I'm wanting to try and define this um, podcast now is sort of like we have our sections for films, we have our sections for video games, but I think... An important one for me to do is just talk about like general life stuff because I feel like right now with all that's going on, it's good to have like something like comforting, like a reminder of just how to get through stuff like this. And I feel like I want to have this talk about motivation and finding the urge to work on things because 
you know I'm the kind of person like I have my routines you know I've got my alarms I know what to do and stuff at just particular yeah. times of the day and obviously with, with this situation this is obviously just out of the question right now I sort of just go through the days just trying to think this is what happens at this time and so often I feel like this could be to someone's detriment where like not having anything like to hold you down I feel can do a Ought to just sap a lot of motivation. So the way I'm working through this right now is I've been tackling things I wouldn't usually have done. I've actually been uh, doing Joe Wicks's for any minute exercises. That's been a big thing on YouTube the last while. Yeah, he's raking it out at the minute. <laughs> yeah, and um, honestly, if it's a good way to stay mentally and physically active. Another for me is that for anyone who knows me IRL knows I love photography. Like my Instagram page is totally dedicated to it. And because of me having to move back home, my Canon DSLR is back in my uni apartment. And because of that, and a lot of my other assignments, I sort of put it on the back burner just to finish some personal things. But more recently, I've decided, you know what, it's my passion. I want to like keep working on this. I want to expand on things. So with whatever's around the house, I've been trying just to practice, refine my skills with different things. And I go away this idea that like, you don't need the best equipment or version of something to like make it work. And the best example I could think of this was the best picture winner for this year, Parasites. It was edited on an older version of Final Cuts because like, yeah, exactly. It was because they wanted very specific editing techniques and stuff that could only be accomplished on older systems with the limitations. Like I think they got removed in updates and I think that should say a lot because I don't usually trust like the Oscars all the time, but the fact that they limited themselves to this older setup achieved greater results. Like Parasite's the first like best picture winner for non non English film, and I think that's like truly amazing that like they worked with what limited resources they had and ended up creating something great. And like I'm trying to say. You don't need the best equipment in the world to make something great. Like, it would be nice if we had Blue Yeti microphones, if we could record this on site, that we didn't need to, like, go into the editing process and remove the ums and ahs just to try and make this. Or have your brother interrupt you halfway through because Luke Kelly is on the radio. Oh, love it. Good good music, by the way. Good music, Um, yeah. Yeah. So what I'll say about this section is that it's hard in times like this when we're in an age of quick fix iPhone solutions. We want like to know things instantaneously when they happen. And the fact that they are wanting us to sit down for an extended period of time with no definitive answer or end, end game in mind, I feel like is what saps a lot of people's motivation to work on things. So if I'm going to leave anything for you is that is to not lose hope. I feel like there's plenty to do. Just look around your house. There's probably something to keep you distracted. There's probably a big backlog of books and films you've been dying to work your way through. Just a big, long list. It's it's, it's more of a bar chart. (laughs) Yeah, even with that, just having something productive to work on, as small as it is, I think can do a lot for one's... Sorry, just their own sort of mental health and how they can view the world, because... We're all in this together, like we're all learning things at a slow pace. That can be scary, but having conversations like this, I feel can do a lot for just passing the time. Like I feel just having these recommendations as poorly as I've been trying to like construct my arguments, I feel like, yeah, I just feel like I've been stumbling over my words in a lot of this repeating points. I feel like, you know, at least I'm trying, I'm working on something to improve, even in the editing when I'm going to, like, eventually do this all together and then upload at some point. I feel like, you know what, I'm at least practicing, I'm working on something. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's you need, you need something to keep you going. I've just started, out of the blue, I just started writing the script last night. Because just one of those things where the idea came to me at 3 o'clock in the morning, I was like, all right, where's my laptop? Get it out. And it, it's it's gotten, it's gotten the days in, at least. <laughs> Yeah, like having something productive to work on, even if you feel like it's not going to actively achieve something, is that like, you know, it's on the back burner. It's something that, you know, you can like plow away at in your, at your own pace. And I feel like because of this very particular set of circumstances, 
we have this time to spend it on things we arguably wouldn't have. Like, I wouldn't have started this podcast if I didn't have time. You probably wouldn't have been able to do this specific script with, like, the constraints put on you right now, I think. No, definitely not. And I've got nothing but... (laughs) If I'm going to end anything here, I'm just going to say that... Don't be afraid to try new f- or old things. Just have a look around, ask for help or help others out because I feel like baby steps are better than no steps at all. Good way to put it. <laughs> okay, I think I'm going to end this here because um, the audio cut out, my brother interrupted, and I feel like I really want to get back to Animal Crossing again. So um, I want to eat. <laughs> that's, that's a big one as well. So... Um, Ladies and gentlemen, that'll conclude us for this second episode. Michael, any last words for the listeners? Yeet. Amen to that. (laughs)